right. How's everybody doing? Yeah, man. Man, things blew up just now in worship, man. It's pretty amazing. Uh, John Walker, I'm so glad you're back. My man was dancing in the back. Yeah, you got to have some dancing. My man was going for it. And, you know, up here, this gets pretty rowdy, and sometimes it has a, a trickle effect of less rowdiness towards the back. And now y'all got John back there. So we're going to keep it live, live. John's old school, man. John's been around for a long time. One of the people that has challenged me in my life as one of the guys in my college ministry and loves the Lord. So if you want to hook up with somebody that will challenge you, I bet John could come up actually and preach James about, I mean, he, this would be his zone right here. I'm kidding. John is full of grace and love for the church and for, for all you fine people. Well, you know, if I, the elementary kids are in here, so I did want to let the parents know that we are going to be diving into the Song of Solomon this morning. Um, I'm totally kidding. I just wanted you to be ready for James and be glad that it's James and not Song of Solomon. But I was thinking about in this passage, it's talking about wealth, and we're going to primarily cover wealth today. There was a lot in James chapter 5, and I could have easily, you know, jumped past that to the, you know, patience and suffering, um, talking about, you know, going after the wanderer, but... We chose to spend a few weeks in James chapter 5 because there really is a lot here. It's known as one of the harshest passages in James, and it's in James. I mean, so it's pretty harsh in terms of the way that it kind of jumps in. I was thinking about wealth in the United States of America, and I did a little bit of research in an area that I know something about, but I don't know if any of you are thrift store people. Anybody thrift store people? Like, there's a lot of thrift store people these days. Uh, some of you know that my wife is a, a, has a problem um, with thrift stores, uh, and it's not that she has a problem with them existing. She has a problem not going in them and buying things. Now, if you're a guy, I just want to let you know, that's a pretty good thing. I mean, you could have a lot worse things. Like, I see the bank statement roll in. I'm like, $2.50 at Goodwill. And I'm like, you go for it, girl. You know what I mean? Let's do that. You know, it could be a lot of different things she could be buying. I mean, makeup is crazy. You go to some of them makeup stores, Goodwill. Come on. I know she does. She's like, I don't buy <laughs> making sure I tell you the makeup doesn't happen at Goodwill. I just want to let you know this right here. This happens differently than Goodwill. I hope you know that. Um, but Thrift stores are her jam. I mean, we live next to a thrift store. I mean, there's, there's a, and I just, it, there's something amazing about thrifting. Like when I grew, when I grew up, like you got your clothes at the thrift store. It was a secret. Like it was not, nobody was proud. Like you, you might get the Nikes that your friends have with a little paper stuffed in them because they didn't quite fit and you would roll in. You did not telegraph or tell anybody, hey, $2 at the thrift store. I mean, that just wasn't cool. Now, I don't know. Thank you, hipsters, because everybody's brags about where they found their stuff. You know, got this couch at the thrift store. I took $9,000 to recover it. I have an Apple watch, but it is awesome. Um, but thrifting is now cool. Like thrifting is the jam. And interesting thing about, like, we have a friend of ours that, and I won't name her, some of you guys know her, she, she's like professional at it, and she doesn't just go there to buy stuff for herself, and she'll keep stuff occasionally, but she knows, like, like she does research on, like, what's cool. And you're down at the beach, you know, some people might drop some things at, at Beam that you just don't know is a treasure. Like, it is crazy. And she, one time, took, like, she bought a pair of shoes for $9, which, and if you don't know anything about thrift, that's an expensive pair of shoes at the thrift store. I mean, we're, you know, we should be getting 50 cent. You know, $9, there must be something going on. So those are the ones you pay attention to. She sold that pair of shoes for $400 on her special site. $400. And that means somebody else thought it was a deal. 
You know what I mean? Like they were originally $700. But then me in my mind, because I'm weird, I'm thinking about the person that bought the pair of shoes that just said, eh, $900 pair of shoes. Let's just bing, drop them at beam. And it, it, it lets me know in my heart of hearts, because there's 130,000 thrift stores in the United States of America, probably total, probably, I think there's 27,000 just nonprofit thrift stores in the United States. There's 75 thrift stores in Jacksonville. And one of the things that tells me is we're not going to find it down here. Like what, what it is that we're looking for, what we're diving into is James kind of comes in pretty harsh about wealth. We're not going to, I mean, one of the, one of the themes in James is you've been, you've gone from death to life and your life is now hidden with Christ and you've, your, your eyes and all of your heart and all of your being should have shifted from here. Like last week, we kind of, kind of dove into that idea that, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. James is letting us know you're not going to find it down here. And this is a harsh movement against wealth to say this is what can happen. And this is kind of the result of getting caught up in wealth and how it drives the heart. And you can, I mean, thrift stores let us know that the things that excite us today are the stuff of next year's garage sales. They just are. That's just kind of the way that it operates. You know, I think a lot of us would say, and I gotta be honest, like, I mean, I don't know that anybody, not everybody, I'm gonna make people raise their hand, but wouldn't you like to win the lottery? I mean, like the, the in the, yeah, somebody's like, I don't care. Like the kids in here, like, right here, Xboxes for days, I'm going in the lottery. Of course, I mean, a $50 million, 500, I mean, there's crazy numbers in the lottery. Uh, I read an article, Reader's Digest, just about how sad these people are. These are some of the, I mean, and there was like 10 things that they all, they did a big story on a bunch of them and interviewed them. And there wasn't like all this, that's all, and they're just all saying, hey, just want to let you know, money ain't all that it's cracked up to be. And they went through several things. But one of the things I thought, I thought was the most interesting is in that range that they were, they were uh, interviewing the $50 million winner to $500 million winner, 70% of them, 70% had lost all their wealth in five years. That is some craziness. So there's a stewardship problem there. I mean, I would say maybe. Um, But it's just, it it lets us know that we're not going to find it down here. And James is saying, we have found it. The grace, he's, it's, it's kind of jumping on the theological bandwagon of Paul saying, you've been raised with Christ. This isn't what you have to do. This is what you get to do. You are free from the bondage of a false savior, the shifting sand of what everybody is feeding you here on planet earth. So when you dive in, if you got your Bible, James chapter five, right at the top, you know, he starts kind of mild in the very beginning. He says, now listen, you rich people. Starts right off. Now, I got to stop right there. I mean, I got to just, just kind of put dot, dot, dot because we can't even continue. Now, here's what people do at this, this moment. And honestly, I think I do this too. It's like rich people. I mean, you got a mindset of rich people. Like, I mean, you're immediately looking around in, in the room going, oh, I know them. They live in the place that's got the thing and it's big. Yeah. No, here's the, here's the reality. When he says rich people, I want us to understand where we are in the West and what our lives look like in comparison to the rest of the world. If you make $25,000 a year annual salary, which in the United States of America is not rich, that's a full, full-time salary, you are in the two percentile of world wealth, like the upper two percent. That means 98% of the rest of the world makes less than you. That's $25,000 a year. 
I mean, that's just, it's all getting quiet. Oh, by the way, I'm not doing a giving talk today. Just want to let you know the, the buckets aren't going to be passed. I still like my 2003 Rusty Suburban. I don't need a new spaceship to ride around in. Um, but $25,000, top two percentile, 98% of the world makes less than you do. In other words, you are somebody's Bill Gates. Like if somebody from across the globe hung out with you, they would be like, you live like Warren Buffett. I mean, they would look at the way that you live, the things that you bought and all of the stuff, and they'd say, you're rich. I just want us to start in that place because I want us all to get in the boat together, including me, and understand who we are. Now, you'll see as we go through this, being wealthy isn't sinful. It'll feel like it in the tension that James brings, but having money in and of itself, is not the issue. We're going to dig a little deeper, and you're going to find out that the heart is really the issue. And the other thing that I want you to see, and I want you to know from the very beginning, because we're looking at Scripture as a whole, and we're applying, we always use biblical hermeneutics, we're applying what we know about the rest of James and what we know about the rest of the Word of God all together, biblical hermeneutics. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. James is accomplishing a specific harsh rebuke to the church to lead this church in a particular way. So we want to apply the fact that we know that we, this is the ocean of grace we're talking about when it comes to the gospel. That no matter who you are, no matter where you've, what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how poorly you've managed your money, no matter what you've done along the way, your sins past, present, and future, if you are a follower of Jesus, have legitimately put your faith in Jesus and you know that he saves and nothing else does, your sins past, present, and future are annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. You wear the righteousness of God. When he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. But yet, we're looking at a pretty harsh rebuke here as we dig into the rest of the book of James. And we'll unpack some of what he is saying as we dig in here. So he says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because, the misery, because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I'm glad he's being mild and kind of holding back a little bit. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. He's saying, you exploiting other people around you, you might not even know it, but wealth, and when you are hungry for wealth, and when you are driving for wealth, there's always a wake of people that you ran over in order to grab that wealth. He's saying, hey, here's an indication that the wealth for you has been a big issue. It's been a big problem because you're, the people that work for you, the people that are under you, the people that you've encountered along the way in your journey to success and wealth you have mistreated. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God sees all this. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you, saying you've, you've just absolutely crushed the world around you. So there's a lot of things that are going on here. One, he's saying, hey, guess what? It's not going to last this, this run that you're on, this, this thing where you're leveraging your wealth to pad your self-esteem and to survive and have your entire life have a, a soft foundation here on earth called, called money. Not only that, 
your heart has been exposed. Your heart's been exposed by the way that, that you treat people. And what I want to do today, because James is doing something that Jesus does. Jesus, in his words, feel a little bit more like the blend of grace and truth, where James comes a little bit more with the truth um, and assuming that we understand the grace of God, assuming and knowing because he's the brother of Jesus, that, hey, you guys know what I believe, that he's changed everything, that your only hope is not figuring out how to manage money, but to completely surrender your lives to Jesus who has made a way for you to be reconnected with him. It's what you were made for and what you were created for. So what I want to do as we dig in here is I want to look at four biblical views on wealth, four things that we find here, but also in other places in Scripture, namely in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 19. So we're going to look at the two brothers, Jesus and James, and see what they're saying about wealth to you and me and to the church. Now, I want to kind of launch into this and just give you a few things, because I, I really think we, we are in a, a precarious position here in the United States. I'm not making excuses or trying to soften the blow of what James is trying to say, but we have something that's pushing against us and the enemy is leveraging it and people with good intentions but ignorance are pr propagating it in our world. And in 2021, currently 6,000 to 10,000 ads a day you're exposed to. That is crazy to think about. Now, you're not absorbing all of that. They're floating around around you on signs. But, but almost 370 of those ads you are taking in and you're contemplating. So you're able to shed off a lot of that. I mean, and it's in, you know, thanks to, and that number, by the way, just five, ten years ago, wasn't even close to six to 10,000. But social media, everything else that comes in, just the way that TV runs, and we think we're avoiding commercials on Netflix and you know, with DVRs. It's just gotten more and more things that are coming at you at a rapid rate. And the things that are coming at you are what? You need this. You need this. You don't have this. You need this. Hey, you want to be prettier? You, you, you're, you need this. You want to be better looking? You want to have higher self-esteem and self-worth? You need to grab these things. You want to have a better vacation? Grab this stuff. You want to have a better night with your friends? Grab this stuff. You want to kick back and you know, blow off the steam of the day? Drink one of these. You want to have a better life? Live here. Be in this particular place. Build one of these. Buy one of these cars and it will change your life. I mean, I can just see Matthew McConaughey rolling in a Lincoln Continental talking like Matthew McConaughey saying, man, this is the way it is right here my Lincoln Continental. I don't know about Texas, but Texas is where I'm heading. You know what I'm saying? You've got ads coming at you all the time. Sorry, I can't help myself. I do like Matthew McConaughey. I used to not. And then all of a sudden he just, it was a few movies there. I was like, he is a genius. Um, but it's coming at you 90 miles an hour all the time, every day, telling you what you don't have. So the world's doing the opposite of what's James saying. You're not going to find it down here. You're not going to find it down here. Your eyes need to be, be moving heavenward. You don't fully see it. Paul would say you see through a glass darkly, but soon you will see face to face that it wasn't down here, that it's here face to face with Jesus. But the rest of the world, wrong, right, or indifferent, is telling you every ad, every person that's trying to find wealth is leveraging you, leveraging you, to find their own wealth. And what they're telling you is you need to buy these things. You need to spend your money on these things. You need to save so that you can survive here on planet Earth. And James is trying to lead us. Jesus is trying to lead us to his feet 
and to raise our eyes and know where our firm foundation is as we dig in. So the first thing that we see here in the biblical views is that, that money won't kill you, but the love of money is deadly. So the money itself is not necessarily the problem, but the love of money is. And you see here in James 5, just starting in verse 2, he says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Verse 3 says, your gold and silver are corroded. And he says, their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What's James trying to say? He's saying money's deadly. Money, the love of money is deadly. Not only is it deadly in a sense that you will ruin people's lives along the way to get it. Like there's people ruining your life to, to get money. I mean, they're exploiting you. You think, we think we're the customer on our phone. You're not... You are the product that is being sold over and over and over again to companies to profit on your time that you look at a screen. But even in the simplest form, the love of money over and over. We watched, anybody a 2020 watcher? Anybody? 2020? There's like, you just, people don't like to admit they watch TV at all. We all watch TV. It's okay. 2020, any of those shows? What happens on those shows? It's usually around money. And what's going to happen surrounding the money? somebody's dying. You know what I'm saying? They're trying to figure out who killed who and who cashed in somebody's insurance policy and ended up in Aruba. I mean, that's just what we're, those shows are about. Mon the love of money is, it is deadly on so many different levels, but it's also deadly in the sense that, well, one, you can see that you're not going to take it with you. You're, we're all going to die. There, there's no trailer hitch on the hearse. I mean, he's saying the, the, Everything comes in on planet Earth and it starts this way and it is headed towards rust, destroy, and decay. It will all be ashes. Everything, including us and your physical bodies. All of it. The only thing that will stand in the end of the days is Jesus' name and the word of God. That's what scripture says. That's it. Everything else is going to blow away with the wind. It's going to be ashes. You're not going to be able to take it with you. In Matthew 19, 23, Jesus says this. And there's some context with it. He says, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's crazy. I mean, elementary kids in here. Check this out. Could you imagine you know how big a camel is? Camel's big, right? I mean, I mean, we don't yet yeah, seen a can. We haven't brought one in here. But just think about a horse with a longer neck and a hump, right? And you know what a needle looks like, right? You down with a needle? I mean, needle's small. Jesus said it's easier for, for a camel to get through something the size of an eye of the needle than for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that is a, when we kind of breeze by that. It's very harsh. But what's Jesus talking about? What's the, if anybody knows this passage in Matthew 19, the, the context is he's just talked about the rich young ruler. This guy says, what do I have to do? I've, I've obeyed all the commands. I've done all the right things. You've told me that's what you have to do. You've got to obey, obey the law, obey all the commands. And then Jesus says what? Sell all your possessions or give all your possessions to the poor and then come follow me. And what happens? The rich young ruler hangs his head and walks away. Because it's all about the love of money. Jesus isn't saying that nobody can be wealthy. Jesus isn't saying that, that there aren't people that are going to be great entrepreneurs that are going to use their wealth to push the kingdom of God forward. He's saying the love of money, the way that we look at money, is a, is a problem. 
And if you think you're going to find it down here, if you think you're going to... And it was the insecurity of a, a rich man saying, I'm going to lose everything here. What, what happened to the, the rich young ruler? And why did he walk away from Jesus instead of become a follower of Jesus? Because he had put all of his hope in money. And he couldn't imagine what it would look like to say, I'm not going to have that house anymore. I'm not going to have these spaceship-looking cars anymore. I'm not going to live amongst my friends anymore. I'm not going to have the status that I used to have anymore. Because wealth isn't just about wealth. It becomes identity. Socioeconomic status is what it is. I mean, I could get in here and, and we could lodge some bombs at just the socioeconomic status of the people that live down at the beach and where we are and what, what status we have and what areas all of us go through this. The, the discomfort of being less than, having less than, having a smaller of or having a cheaper or older of, whatever that may be. It, it creates status. It creates identity. And people get terrified of losing it all because they're like, what are we going to do? Our kids won't be able to play on this baseball team, soccer team. We won't be able to go to these things. When, when everybody's headed to, you know, where marker 32 to go out to eat, guess, guess who's, we, we won't be able to go. I mean, we're going to have to go, look, we, we're, we're doing two months of rice and beans trying to figure it out. I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things. We've, we attach identity to our wealth. Money won't kill you, but the love of money is deadly. It's deadly because it perpetuates independence from God. The Garden of Eden was a pursuit of wealth for self. Like if you look at Adam and Eve, what did they want? They, they had everything, but they lost sight of everything and began to what? Think that they could find it down here. And the enemy comes very subtly and says, God's, God's lying to you. You could be your own God. You could be independent. And they said, all right. And guess what? They did what they needed to do to become independent. And God said, yep, you've now become independent. Boop, out of the garden of Eden, two fiery angels. And we saw how the story goes from there. It goes downhill fast. Because when we roll in independence from God, things don't go well. But here, insert wealth. Guess what wealth does? It makes us feel like we can be independent. It makes us feel like we don't need God. That's why I think it's hard for the gospel to move like fire in the West here in America. It is blazing in poor countries across the globe. Here it's trickling. People find their way to church. But I'm talking about the gospel invading someone's heart and people surrendering their lives to Jesus. Not people attending church and drinking lattes. No offense. I'm just saying. That's just what we do here in the West. It's different in other places because wealth creates independence from God. And then church becomes a little bolt on good idea thing that we do that we can medicate our naughty kids with and we can kind of make us feel good like we've done our you know, thing here in the southeast in the Bible Belt. We've come to church and done our thing. And then we go back to our opulent lives and our successful lives and the lives where all of our security is built on wealth and independence from God. We wouldn't say it out loud. And sometimes it's subconscious because the enemy is so crafty. He wants, he wants to put you in a hole in the ground, separated from God. His plan is to kill you. And guess what? He takes something that we love and that we look at thinking as a savior, which is money. And he uses it against us because he's crafty. And like I said, it's, it's, there's no, it's not sinful to be wealthy. I've... There's a friend of mine I used to go to RCC with, 
And I didn't know this for a long time until I worked in finance at RCC as one of the elders there. I, was, I did kind of Mike Barry's job at River City as the liaison to the finance committee. And we redid all the books, all the finances and everything. And, you know, you get to see what everybody gives, which can be an unhealthy thing. But we kind of signed a document that said we're not going to make people feel bad, like walk into church going, yeah, I know what you give. Um, we, we knew, though, like we knew who the top givers were, who the top 20 was and all that kind of stuff. And I was shocked to see who the top giver was. I mean, I knew he had money, but I was just like, yeah, I mean, he, I just thought he was one of those people that, yeah, he's, he's, he's got some. His giving was, I was like, I don't know where he comes. He's got money coming out his ears. But nobody knew. Everybody assumed it was the people with the three houses. Everybody assumed, because there was a lot of those people at River City. There was a lot of people that had money, that had places on the river and a house and you know, Canada and the Bahamas and different things. And they thought, okay, this is why this church has lots of money and is able to do ministry. And then I looked at the top giver and I'm like, he drives a 2006 Honda Accord and he's been driving that thing every year I've been there. Lives in a house that's 1,800 square feet. I, I just like was just blown away. And then I had a conversation with him. I was bold enough to just say, dude, what's up? Like, and he, nobody really knew like that he was, the, he was the by far, nobody was even in the ballpark of how much he gave. It would blow your mind at the dollar figure that he gave annually to the church. And it just was his mentality. The gospel had changed him so much from the inside out that he, he wasn't competitive. And he's like, who am I competing with? I make more money than all these jokers. Plus, I'm going to heaven. You know, he's just like, I, he didn't care. He wasn't trying to be that guy. And he's still that guy today. He is still that guy today. And every time I'm with him, all the challenge that he is making all the time is asking people how much you can give away. Because he, and he's, he will tell you that the joy found in life is realizing that you could be open-handed and knowing that this doesn't save you. And that it will kill you. If you're not open-handed with it, it will kill you. But in the hands of God, it is one of the funnest things. If God blesses you with wealth, to be able to give it away and not spend it on yourself. To bless the mission of God and bless the world around you. I mean, he was an incredible person to know and always challenging to me. So money won't kill you, but the love of money is dead. Let's move on. Money reveals the heart. Money reveals the heart. That's what we see in this passage is this revelation that James is saying, there's a bunch of you that are running over other people. You're abusing other people along the way and God sees it. It's revealing what you love. It's revealing what you've put your hope in. It's, it's revealing. This is one good thing about money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does that mean? It means look at your bank statement. There's a reason that people don't like to make their finances public. And the very reason, I mean, just think about it. It's just like there's that one thing on there that it's like, I don't know how I'd explain that. I mean, I just don't even know how that would happen. It's the missile. I was doing our budget a couple years ago. We were trying to rearrange finances so we could um, buy a house here at the beach and just kind of figuring, figuring things out. And I remember looking at the, like, here's all the stuff that, and this is how, how much we spend. And then there's the miscellaneous column. And there's the reason there's miscellaneous is you just don't want to write it down. Like, you don't want to write down big screen TVs in a column somewhere. I mean, it just feels icky. I mean, it's just one of those things. So you put it in miscellaneous, and then you realize it's the biggest column. That's the, I spent this on me <laughs> column, you know? It's the wallet is a window to the soul. 
That's what Matthew chapter 6 is this weird thing about the eye and how it kind of gets into the soul and it's stuck in the middle of all this stuff on wealth. And you kind of wonder why, it, why it's there. But if you zoom out, you see what Jesus is trying to say. He's like, hey, I just want to let you know, you don't have to show everybody your bank statement, but hey, go check your wallet. Check your bank statement because all the things that are on there are an indication of what you love. They're, they're the things that you think will rescue you and save you. They're the things, and they could be, I mean, it could be going out to eat. It can be food. There's things that we, that we make our Savior in some indirect ways that are kind of strange, but they are an indicator of the heart. It's a great self-exposure to look at the bank statement and go, what are we doing, babe? Like, what we, what, what's going on with all of our finances? And we usually do that for the wrong reason. I mean, you're just pulling out your hair going, why are we spending this? Kids cost a lot. I mean, you're just like looking at it going, you know, what, what is this? But they will let you know. The bank statement will let you know what, you, what do you love? I mean, it might say that you love your kids. I mean, you spend a lot of money on your kids, but that can be a great thing or an unhealthy thing. Your house, your cars, all of those things. Unbelievable self-exposure. Number three, money is dangerous. Not wrong, just dangerous. I love this. Dave used this example one time. I loved it. He's like, fire is this way. Like, we love fire. I mean, we're getting ready to get into the fall season. Well, maybe before December. I don't know. You know, it's Florida. <laughs> but we like fires and getting, you know, getting around. Fire is great. But Dave's, you know, one of Dave's jobs, his smaller, more insignificant job, other than being a pastor, is he's a fireman. Fire, I won't tell you exactly what he was comparing it to because we do have elementary kids in here. But fire is dangerous. But it's also something that's very useful and beautiful. I mean, watch, ask Tom Cruise on Castaway. His fire is good. Like, we want fire. It's a great thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. The internet's the same way. It's a benign thing. We would say, is the internet good? Yeah, all of us use the internet. Is the internet bad? Yeah, the internet can be real bad. Right? I mean, money is in the same category. Money isn't meant for the throne, but we put it there. Why? Money isn't the throne, but we, we put it there, directly and indirectly. And I'm going to just give you three lies under this third point, which is money is dangerous. I should have probably put these on the screen. Maybe 11 o'clock will get the better sermon. Um, the first lie is I can remove anxiety with money. That's the first lie. And, and I feel that way. Do you not feel that way? Like if I just had a little bit more cash, that chase bill would be gone on my credit card. You know what I mean? I could, I could take this off and I would feel better. Like mentally at the top end of things and the way that we think in the world, it's like money removes anxiety. It's interesting. Soren Kierkegaard says this about money. And I think it's so true. If you really think about it, he says, riches in abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties. And they become the object of anxiety. So your stuff becomes the things we're anxious about. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put to tending the sheep. He's saying it's not gonna, if you think money is going to make you less anxious, you're wrong. If you think the stuff that you can buy with money is gonna make you less anxious, you're, you're wrong. And that, that in the simplest ways bores itself out. I mean, who drove like, Junker cars growing up. Like your, your parents said, I love you. Here's this piece of crap you're going to drive. Like, yeah, a lot of you. I mean, you remember that? I mean, I just don't remember. I mean, it was just like, you know, here's this. And dad sprayed some primer on all the bad spots. You're just like, let's roll. I don't remember. I, I would walk out of wherever. And I don't remember ever seeing a scratch on it. 
there were scratches all over it. But, I mean, I did, if somebody keyed it, I wouldn't have known. My friend, I remember, drove and backed over something and hit a bump with one of those culverts that was like that big and went, and just scraped the side of it. And we just got in and left. I don't remember going, hey, man, what are you doing? I just was like, let's get in the car. I actually had a friend of mine. He had a, just a garbage car. Me and Dave were talking about this the other day. He had a, this, I don't even know what it was, had a screwdriver stuck in for the stick shift and it was like not all the gears worked. And he would be, always be in front of me going into school. There's always a line coming into school and juniors and seniors would kind of make their way in. You had to get, get in the line with everybody else to get through the gate. Private school, everybody drove nice cars except for us. And my wife, she drove a, a just doodoo brown car that was awesome. Uh, Fairmont, was it a Fairmont? Yeah, everybody called it. There goes a doodle brown. It was awesome. So I would get behind him, and this is how much we cared about our cars. I would, I would literally bump him into the, like, I could just crash into him. I'd make sure he wasn't going to hit somebody, the kids with the BMWs, but I'd be like, get right behind him and just, and he, you know, turn around. And if he was behind me, he did the same thing. He just didn't care. And then get older, make some money, buy a new car. What do you do? All of a sudden, I'm worried about that thing. I'm looking, parking it 19 miles away from the department store, making sure, or just irritated with everybody in the crappy parking. They're like, do you have to be this close to the white lines? I don't understand. I mean, it's like, I'm going to have to do this. And then you just pull out and move it. And then you come out and you see a little ding on it. Was that there when we bought this, honey? I don't even know if this is there. And it's crazy. Then you have kids and you're like, debris, you're getting debris in here. I mean, just going crazy. You know, like you move my seat and there's things on the windows. What are you doing? Everything changes. More anxious. More anxious. I mean, I had, we had a one-bedroom, one, you know, one bathroom, just a tiny little place when, when Beth was in grad school and I had started working after undergrad. And we were happy. I wasn't worried about the yard. I mean, it was like, that's somebody else's business. I don't own this joint. We were as happy. I mean, do you ever think that? Like now I'm like, I look at my insurance. I look at all the stuff that I got and the insurance that I've got to pile on it to keep it. Stuff does not remove anxiety. It doesn't. We think that it does. We act like it does. It's, it's like the fear of being somebody. We think if we have money, then that will change. Like all of a sudden, we will be able to build our self-worth. We will be able to be in the right crew. We'll be able to go to Applebee's and Bennigan's with everybody else. I'm just kidding, Applebee's and Bennigan's. I just didn't even, is there Bennigan's even exist anymore? I don't even know. But you'll be able to do the things that everybody else does. It's interesting in that lottery article, this is what they said. They said they got all this money and they thought, okay, now we'll be able to do stuff and go around. And all of a sudden, all the people that they hung out with, that's all they could do was go to Applebee's and Bennigan's. And when you have $50 million, you really are kind of done with Bennigan's. I mean, you just don't want to go there. And so you end up subsidizing them going to places like Marker 32 or we're going to fly to Milan for dinner, you know, whatever we're going to do. And you keep doing that. And then you get sick of subsidizing your friends. And guess what you do after that? You find new friends. And then we're just talking about how sad it was that your whole, you left all these people behind, not because they were bad people, but just because you didn't fit in anymore because you had too much money. And, and, and you think that, that it's going to remove the fear that you have of not fitting in or being an outsider. And, it, and when, in, when in fact, it's, it does the opposite. And when is it enough? I mean, I read something in a book it's called Twilight of the Elites. I don't agree with everything in the book, um, but um, he, there was a bunch of great statistics in there. And Fidelity did this study on people that had a million dollars of liquid cash. 
when I say liquid cash, if you're an elementary student, it doesn't mean that like the cash was like water or like drippy dollar bills. It was like usable. It wasn't their retirement. It wasn't the, the, the things like the, the asset, the solid assets. It was like, this is stuff that we can make money on, like play money. They all, they all had a million dollars or more. And 42% of them considered themselves not wealthy. A million dollars? Are you kidding me? 42%. And the problem is, is it's not down here. We were created for eternity. Every single one of you was created for eternity. And money's not eternal. Stuff's not eternal. And whether you believe it or not, your spirit internally that God put inside of you, according to the Old Testament, according to a really smart guy named Solomon, said it's, it's wound into the heart of man eternity. So none of this will work. In fact, what did Solomon say about his wealth, about his wisdom, about his kingdom, about all the things that he achieved at the end of his days? Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. He knew. It took him a while, but he knew that that's what it was going to be. So I can't remove anxiety. I'll go through these quickly. Money, you know, the, the saving money can, you know, save you. It's not going to. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't save money, 401ks and all that. I mean, stewardship is not the same as putting your, all of your hope in it. So save money. Proverbs will tell you, hey, don't be dumb. You know, don't go around you know, blaming Derek for the reason that you're an idiot. Like, hey, I didn't save anything. We just spent it all. Woo! You know, we just, you know, there's no, and, there, and there's something called the poverty gospel that's not the real gospel where somebody will elevate their righteousness based on the fact that they're poor. Like, I, because I've given it all away, because I've, you know, I'm living on the street, because I'm doing these particular things, God loves me more. That's just as bad as the prosperity gospel, where you think God's blessed you because you're, you know, you've done the right thing, and that's why you have money. But it can't save you. It won't save you. It is shifting sand. Look at 2008. People had savings. People had 401ks. People had money in the stock market. And then 2008 hit, and that kind of, it was literally shifting sand. It was literally paper that did not exist that people didn't really know about when it came to the mortgage market, when it came to the markets in general. And all of a sudden, it went away. And you see video pictures of people jumping out of buildings because they've lost all of their money. We realize saving money is not going to save you. It doesn't mean we don't save it. It's just we hold it loosely like my friend and just say, if it's here, great. I'm going to give it away. If it's not, I've got heaven to look forward to. Last one is I'll be a better, more generous person. I'll be a better, more generous person. I mean, the reality is, is if you weren't generous before wealth, you're not going to be generous after wealth because generosity is a, is a hard issue. And true generosity comes from the gospel. It doesn't come from money. The thing that will make you truly generous, because you can give away money, and be cool, and nobody will know, and, and they'll believe that you're a generous person, but in terms of generosity in the heart, the only person that's gonna really know if you're generous is God. And the only thing that will make you generous is the unending ocean of grace that gets poured on you by Jesus because of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. It is the only thing that really, truly can open up our hands and, and make us, it put us in the position of, I don't have to do this, but I get to do this. Because I got something better than the stuff in my hands coming from me. It gives you a vision for something that's completely and utterly different. You're not going to be a more generous person or a better person if you become wealthy or famous. You see wealthy and famous people. They end up actually being more reclusive and running from people. John Piper says this. I love it. He says, I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. 
I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before I know it, I am calling luxurious, luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. Like we are strangers here. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. And I love that. Because the benefit is not just that grace has come and changed everything for us inside out. And we have a glorious inheritance. But also God has invited us into an epic grand story that is so much bigger than building a little tiny kingdom for yourself. He can actually give you the opportunity, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can now become the ambassadors, the lucky ones that get to carry the most amazing news out of your chest into the rest of the world to say, there is something that will last forever. There is true gold and silver that will last in the kingdom of God. There is something coming for you if you're patient that will change everything. We get the benefit of doing that. So the fourth thing that I want you to know about wealth that we see here is that God's grace makes you rich. This next section, if you read this passage, and I encourage you to, but we're out of time, just is all about patience. Patience in suffering, patience in waiting for Jesus because the judge is at the door, the king is at the door, Jesus is at the door, and there's something that's coming for you. It is a warning and a celebration all at once. Hold on. There's something coming. Don't do what the, what the wealthy in this passage are doing. Don't be the person that puts all of your hope here. There's something coming. Be patient in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of what you're going through. There's something coming for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a blip on the radar. This is just a micron of time. That, this is a don't waste your life moment on the things that don't and won't matter in the end. And what makes that difficult is we can't see what's coming. We see darkly. But the Bible gives us this beautiful picture that heaven is not going to be a place. Kids, look. Look at me, you elementary guys. Sometimes we think about heaven as like angels, like floating on clouds and doing that thing and just kind of cruising. And and I'm like, dude, my Xbox is awesome. Surfing, awesome. Is heaven like, you know, just kind of cruising, picking my teeth on a cloud? Is that cool? No, heaven is going to be, it's, it's going to be a redeemed a fix. God's going to fix all of earth. So it'll be all the things that you enjoy, just better. All of the good gifts God's already given, just off the chart, even better. It's going to be, it's, it's just hard to comprehend. And when it comes to your self-worth, the way that you know that God loves you, when it comes to what group and friends you, you have, because that's the things we get tense about, you will actually, we know because of what God's given us by the power of his spirit and his word that we are eternally proved of by somebody that's more important than any person on planet earth, but yet we still pine for other people's approval. That will be gone, but we don't see it. You know, this interesting story, and I'll end with this, just about patience and vision. In 1952, a, uh, a woman named Florence Chadwick, she tried to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And for those of you that are fitness people, uh, and you run marathons, it's about 25 miles swimming. And I know y'all think that running's the hardest thing, but you swim 25 miles, you, it's a whole nother thing. 
And the first time she tried, she went for 15, 15 hours through waves, danger of, you know, wildlife, sharks, everything you can imagine uh, in a 25 stretch of ocean in the Pacific, which is a whole different ballgame than the Atlantic. And then the fog set in. And as soon as the fog set in, there was no way for her to see really where she was going or what was ahead of her, or how far she had to go. And so she quit. But then she tried again two months later. And this time, same scenario, same thing happened, but the fog set in again. And she kept going. And she made it. And a reporter asked her and said, hey, what, what was it that, like, what was the difference between the two times? You were in just a good a shape and all the factors were pretty much identical. What was the difference? And she said, when I went out the second time, in my mind, I had already seen the shoreline. I went to that place that I knew I was going. I stood there. I looked around. I had a vision for it. I knew what it looked like. I had a picture of it. I imagined it with everything that I am what the shoreline looked like. So when the fog set in, I didn't see the fog. I saw the shoreline. And I kept swimming. And I just want to encourage you, just where we are, it would be very easy to pat our wallets, to get our lives completely rooted here, putting our hope here, being just as anxious as the rest of the world. But God gives us this beautiful gift of his grace that gives us the opportunity to look in front of us, to keep swimming through the fog, to keep going through the fog, to keep going when we don't know because the judge, the king, Jesus is at the door. And it's going to swing wide and you're going to see him face to face. And I promise you with everything that I am that it is going to be better than the things that we have here, than the, than the trinkets of tomorrow's garage sale that we go so crazy over. It will be better and more glorious and more life-giving. It will be redeemed without pain. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep striving. Keep moving. Not because you're earning your salvation, but because your salvation is set. And on the other side of that fog is a glorious inheritance that will absolutely blow your mind. God's grace makes you rich. Let's stand. God, we love you. God, continually lead us the way that only you can. God, give us a vision by the power of your spirit and the power of your word of what heaven's gonna be like, of what it will be like not to receive things out of your pockets, but to see you face to face, to have a relationship with you, to spend time with you, to be loved by you, to worship you.